In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Christian financial planning expert Dave Ramsey uh, has a recommendation that everybody create something he calls a love drawer. And in this love drawer, you would place your will, you would place your life insurance policy, you would place all of the paperwork and things that your family is going to need if you die. And he calls it a love drawer because he sees it as a gift to your family to love them enough to prepare those things ahead of time and have them in an orderly way so that they have clear instructions about what to do. It's already a chaotic enough time in their life if you were to die. The love drawer makes it just a little bit easier. But he also recommends sticking a letter in the love drawer to everybody that you might want to write a letter to with any words that you might want to share with them. If you think about that, what would you want to share with the people who mean the most to you? What would be important enough for you to put that in that kind of a letter for your love drawer? The words which we find recorded in chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John are kind of like a love drawer. People sometimes call this the upper room discourse or perhaps the farewell discourse because this was Jesus' opportunity to prepare his disciples for his death, to say goodbye to them, realizing that everything was about to change. And so it contains Jesus' final instructions to his disciples on that night before his death. And Jesus says lots of things in these chapter, in these three chapters, but perhaps one theme stands out more than any other, and that's the theme of love. If you look at the, the chapters over and over and over again, Jesus comes back to the theme of love. It's kind of like a, a symphony where a theme is introduced and then the composer goes away from that theme and it always comes back to that, that theme over and over and over again. And the, the theme of this symphony, this farewell discourse, is overwhelmingly love. When we look at chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When the Bible was translated into Latin, the word commandment that was used in the Latin translation was mandatum. And that's the way we get to the, the word Maundy Thursday that we're celebrating this evening. Maundy Thursday refers to that command that Jesus gave to his disciples, this new command. Not a command as in the Ten Commandments, but a, a commandment to love one another. Even as Jesus loves each one of us, so also are we to love one another. Those are Jesus' last words to his disciples in this farewell discourse, this upper room, last supper discourse. 
And so when Jesus, at supper time, realizes that somebody needs to wash the disciples' feet, somebody needs to wash his feet, if you didn't know, streets were a little bit dirty in Jerusalem in the first century. Uh, we can go into all of the reasons why it was dirty, but just suffice it to say, they were really dirty. And I'm not just talking about dust. There was lots of crud on people's feet because they would walk with sandals through the streets and there was all kinds of junk in the streets. And anything that was on the streets, that's what was on your feet. And so whenever you came to someone's house, they would always have their servant wash your feet so you weren't tracking all that gunk into their house. It was a, a way of showing hospitality to have your servant wash the feet of your guests. But Jesus takes the place of a servant. He's giving his disciples an acted parable of the Lord's humiliation unto death, as one commentator says. It's an object lesson. It's an introduction to much of what he wants to share with them that night. And in the Gospel of John, that's the very first thing that happens in chapter 13. We get this brief introduction, and then immediately Jesus is taking off his outer garments, wrapping a towel around his waist, and coming with bowl and pitcher to wash the feet of his disciples. And then when he's done, he turns around and he says this to them. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. To take the place of a servant, to take that lowliest, demeaning task, is what Jesus calls his disciples to do for one another. Is Jesus abolishing all authority? No. He goes back and he takes his place at the head of the table, as he ought, as their rabbi and teacher. But he shows them that that authority is not about being served, but serving. And Jesus gives his example of leadership by taking the lowliest place and asking his disciples to do the same. He's calling his disciples to love and to serve. This is the example that he wants them to follow when he's gone. These are the words coming out of Jesus' love drawer. So, how do we go about serving? Before we even talk about how to serve or in what ways to serve, we have to talk about the orientation of our hearts. Because we can serve and do all the right things and get it completely wrong. Your motives are just as important as your actions when you serve. So what are some wrong motives for serving? Well, the first one would be to earn favor with God. To try and earn favor with God by serving in God's kingdom. And all of us have some sense of a a brownie point system, a merit badge system, uh, a gold star system. We want to be, you know, the kind of people who do the right things. We want to earn those points with God. But God's not counting your brownie points. 
The church has tried that system, and it really failed. It, it was a, a horrible disaster. It's not about brownie points. It's not about earning favor with God. It's about thanking God for what he's done for you and following in his example. When the Anglican Church was founded at the time of the Reformation 500 years ago, uh, they had some things to talk about with regard to good works. As I mentioned previously, in the church up to that point, uh, you kind of earned your way out of purgatory by doing good things. And so you'd get days taken off of your time spent in purgatory. We don't believe in purgatory, but that's what they believed in the Middle Ages. And you'd, you'd get these years or days taken off of your time in purgatory by doing good things. What they said in the Anglican Church at the time of the Reformation is this. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his Spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men ready to receive grace. Yea, rather, they that are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt that they have but the nature of sin. So what he's saying there, what the author is saying, is that if you're doing good things, but you don't have the grace of Christ working in you, then even the things that you're doing that you think are good have the nature of sin. Kind of bends your brain, right? To think that I could be doing something good and be sinning as I do it. How is that possible? It comes, again, to our hearts, to our motive, to why we're serving. If we're serving to win favor with God, it's not going to work. Because we already have favor with God. And God showed us that favor by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world to take on human flesh and to die on the cross for our sin. That's the only way that we get favor with God, is because God has had favor on us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to get better. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more because God already loves you more than he possibly, than you could possibly imagine. So we can't serve our way into God's love because God already loves you. The second wrong motive for service is any other ulterior motive. And there are lots of them. Just think about all the reasons we might serve someone to get something in return. When you serve someone with the wrong motives, it feels icky to that person, and they will not feel served. Instead, they'll feel used. And so we need to be careful not to have ulterior motives when we serve, not to serve to earn favor with God, not to serve to earn favor with people, not to serve to put ourselves in a good light in front of others. There are all kinds of reasons you could serve wrongly. We need to set those all aside because true service springs out of Christ's love and it has no strings attached. And so when we serve, it's a pure gift, just like God's love to us is a pure gift. It comes with no strings. It's not something that they earn. It's not something you do to earn favor with them. It is purely a gift, and that gift comes straight from the love of Jesus, and you become a conduit of God's love to that person. But we also have to remember that good works are important. 
not to earn favor with God, but as the right fruit that comes from a lively faith. And so in the very next article of the 39 Articles, it says, Yet good works are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, and do spring out of necessarily a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. How do you know a Christian? Because they act like a Christian. They act like a Christian because they have the grace of Christ working in them. And just like a spring of water can't help but bubble up with water, a Christian's life can't help but bubble up with good works. Just like an orange tree can't help but bear oranges, barring a hard freeze, a Christian's life will naturally bear good fruit when we have the grace of Christ working in us. So we have to serve with right motives, giving up any claim or right on the ways that we serve and serving purely as a way to love with Christ's love. So how do we serve? In the book that we've been studying uh, about the celebration of discipline by Richard Foster, in his chapter on service, he gives a number of different ways to serve, some of them that you may not have even thought of as ways that Christians serve. And the first one he talks about is the service of hiddenness. That's when we serve without anybody knowing what we're doing. Anybody. When I was at the the seminary before we moved down here, frequently people would leave little gifts in other people's mailboxes with no note, with no name, just a pure act to bless the other person. And so we'd get these little thank you notes uh, on our campus news, uh, which was our, our email list, where people could, could share things back and forth. You send an email, it goes to the whole campus. And they'd say, thank you to whoever put that $5 in my mailbox. Or thank you to whoever put that little book in my, in my mailbox. It made such a difference to me. And when that person said thank you in that public way, everybody's heart got light. Because that gift was not just a blessing to the person who received the gift. That gift that act of service, that act of selfless, hidden service, became a gift to the entire community, to everybody who heard about it. Not because of the person who did it, but because of the act of love. Another thing is the service of small things, the menial things, the washing of feet, the doing of laundry, the cooking of a meal, The things that maybe no one sees, maybe they do see, but they make such a difference in a person's life. And when you see someone in need and you do those things for those people, you're serving. When you cook a meal for your family, you're serving. When you clean up someone's yard for them, you're serving. When you fix someone's plumbing, you're serving. And these are the service of small things. It can be the tiniest little thing, but it means an immense amount to the person who receives it. Another form of service is guarding the reputation of others. When you look out and you see things being wrongly said about someone, to stand up for them, to speak up for them and say the right things on their behalf is a true gift of service to that person. 
That's a gift that we need to cultivate in Christian community. Because in Christian community, gossip has no place. It destroys secular communities. It destroys Christian communities all the same. And the way that we defend against gossip is by defending the reputation of others, not allowing gossip to take place. And then there's the service of being served. That's a funny one, isn't it? Being served is a surface. When Peter becomes the first one that Jesus attempts to wash his feet, Peter steps back. He says, no, Lord, no, you, you won't wash my feet. He couldn't bear the thought of his rabbi, his teacher, his master, bending down and serving him. But what did Jesus say? He says, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Then Simon, of course, flips the other way. He says, well, then not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well. And Jesus said, no, you've already had a bath. It's okay. I'm just going to wash your feet. When we allow others to serve us, we are serving them. Because we need to serve as Christians. And if we're in a community of Christians, and we all need to serve, and nobody's willing to be served, we're going to have a lot of servants just twiddling their thumbs, waiting for someone to serve. You got nothing to do. I'd like to serve someone, but I don't have anyone to serve. When you allow yourself to be served by someone else, you are serving that person. When we choose not to be served, it's our pride that gets in the way. I've been guilty of that many times. I imagine many of you have as well. So we need to be willing to serve, but we need to be willing to be served as well. Then there's the service of common courtesy. Returning phone calls, answering emails, sending those RSVPs to that party that you didn't really want to go to. It helps to just say, can't make it, I'm sorry. That's common courtesy. Holding a door for someone. Saying please and thank you. When we do these things, we show that the other person has dignity. We show them respect. And it helps them to feel valued, to be taken seriously. And so when we show common courtesy, we are serving. And then there's hospitality. In the book of Hebrews, in the author's list of final instructions, yet another set of final instructions, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Jesus says, if you give even a cup of cold water to someone who's coming in my name, you've done it unto me. When you visit those in prison, when you clothe the naked, when you feed the hungry, even as you do it to the least of these my brothers, you do it to me. We need to show hospitality. We need to welcome people into our homes. We need to talk with them and listen to them. That's an incredible way to love someone. There's a study about international students who come to America to study from all over the world. And there's a very high percentage of those international students 
who never set foot in an American home for the entire four years that they study at a college. Can you imagine that? Four years in a country and never setting foot in someone's home. And yet, what an opportunity to serve them. What an opportunity to love them. What an opportunity to share Christ's love with them. And maybe they'll take Christ's love back with them to wherever it was that they came from. And then there's the service of listening. When was the last time someone truly sat and listened to you and heard your heart? Listening is a rare gift in our culture. It's a fast-paced culture. We move from one Facebook post onto the next one very rapidly. We move from one activity to the next very rapidly. And we rarely take the time to really sit and truly listen. And that's yet another form of service. And then there's the service of bearing one another's burdens. That's the service of empathy. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We need to bear one another's burdens, to walk with the person who's suffering to sit with them in that awkwardness and share their pain, to carry their burden for them for just a short way. And finally, there's the service of sharing the word of life with one another. We need one another to speak God's truth into each other's lives. None of us hears God's voice as clearly as we would like to. And so when you hear a word on behalf of someone else, share it. Even if it seems a little weird, even if you're not quite sure about it, go ahead and share it anyway. The worst that could happen is that you're wrong. And that's okay. That's how you learn to listen to God's voice. But also to share the word of life with another. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who doesn't know him. That too is service. So why do we serve? What are the benefits of serving? Why is service so important? Why did Jesus emphasize it so much, even in these last chapters, as he's speaking to his disciples? In the Gospel of Luke, just after the institution of the Lord's Supper, a dispute arose amongst his disciples regarding which of them was the greatest. It's kind of ironic. Jesus institutes the sacrament of communion, by which we're united to one another as the body of Christ, and we're united to Christ. And then immediately after, his disciples are arguing about which of them is the best. Oh, it's me. No, it's me. And Jesus comes and he talks to them. And he says this. This is chapter 22. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. The whole goal of the Christian life is to draw closer to Christ, to be reconciled to God, to pattern our lives more and more on the image of Christ, to look more and more like Jesus. And so if we want to look like Jesus, we need to do the things that he did. And Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus calls us to follow his example, to do the things that he did to wash one another's feet, to serve one another in all the ways we just talked about. I am among you as one who serves. Pride is at the root of so many of our sins. It was Satan's pride which caused him to fall in the first place. It was Satan's pride which caused him to want to draw Adam and Eve away from the living God. And it's pride that's at the root of all of our selfishness and our inwardness, which is basically the the predisposition that's given to each and every one of us at birth. And we carry that with us through the rest of our lives. Hopefully we grow in holiness. Hopefully we grow away from that pride. But there's a piece of that pride, that inwardness, that selfishness, that's a part of all of us. It's a part of original sin. And so to combat that pride in our lives, we need the opposing virtue of humility. And Richard Foster says, more than any other single way, the grace of humility is worked into our lives through the discipline of service. So when we serve, we're following the example of Jesus, but we're also combating the pride in our lives, the selfishness in our lives, the inwardness in our lives. The thing inside of us that says when Jesus is calling us to serve, I'm tired. I think I'd rather stay home tonight. Maybe there's something on TV. When we choose to serve, when we choose to follow, when we choose to go, we're dying to ourselves. We're taking up our cross. We're following Jesus. Foster continues, saying, Nothing disciplines the inordinate desires of the flesh like service. And nothing transforms the desires of the flesh like serving in hiddenness. The flesh whines against service but screams against hidden service. It strains and pulls for honor and recognition. It will devise subtle, religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service rendered. If we stoutly refuse to give in to this lust of the flesh, we crucify it. Every time we crucify the flesh, we crucify our pride and our arrogance. So this, too, is why we must serve. But there's one final reason. When we serve in love, we grow God's kingdom. If we turn to chapter 17, the end of this farewell discourse we get into what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the prayer Jesus prays for his disciples at supper before they leave and go across the Kidron Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the very end of this prayer, 
a prayer where he's praying for unity among his disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When we love one another, when we love those who are in the world, it helps them to believe that Jesus was sent by God. It helps them to believe that all of this is actually true. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, there it is again, and love them even as you loved me. And then in verse 26, he concludes saying, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Love. Jesus loved us. We love him. He calls us to love one another. And he calls us to love those who are still in the world. Because true love is hard to find. There's plenty of that 70s feel-good love. People all over the world join hands, start a love train. But when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road, who's still there holding your hands? That's where the love is. It's not about how you feel. In fact, it's about doing it when you don't feel it. That's where the true love is. And when we love one another, when we love those who are outside of the faith, we are demonstrating God's love to the world. God's love flows through us to them. And God's love is deeply compelling. So love one another. As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love because you first loved us. Help us to love. Help us to see the hidden motives of our heart. And we pray that you would peel those away like layers of an onion. Help us to set aside our pride and in place put humility. Help us to see those in need and help us to love them with your love. And we pray, Lord, that many would be loved into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.